Hello again, and welcome back to the Gene Wolf Literary Podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Brandon Buddha. And I'm Glenn McDorman. This episode, we're discussing the second section of VRT. Uh, there's some really fascinating things packed into this section, so let's just jump straight in. Brandon, what do you have in store for us? There is a lot of story in this section, but maybe not so much plot in the classical sense of uh, story in terms of moving the action forward. So I think we're going to do a few book club questions, and then we're really going to dig into the last section of this story where Marsh creates a legal defense for himself with using some bizarre and absurd forms of reasoning and logic. And we'll be looking whether his arguments may be sound, but not valid, and the reasons why not. I think you know, the presence of this sort of absurd uh, pseudo reasoning, along with the, you know, Saint with the Saint Anne field guide and things like that. We're really delving into, you know, Borges type of territory in this story. Yeah, I mean, absurdist is really the only way to describe the legal argument that he makes here at the end. Uh, I mean, it's it's a clever bit of sophistry. And while I was reading it, certainly I wondered, what is the counter argument to the claims that he is making? And I'm excited to to get to that. But I think we've got some things we're going to do before we get there. I just want to talk about the first thing that really jumped out at me in this section. And I think we did a pretty good job of bringing it up in the recap. But it's the contrast between VRT and Marsh. As we know, this section is entirely from Marsh's point of view. But as we're the objective observers of all of this information, we have to cast a dispassionate eye to the types of things we're reading, which is what Wolf is inviting us to do. I wonder if Wolf is asking us to do this as a method for all of his books, or if he's just making the point in this third part of his trilogy of novellas. Um, that's a much larger question, though. One thing we do see in this section, in contrast to VRT, is Marsh's violence using gun and his wastefulness of resources and animal bodies, really. You know, Marsh has no idea about the amount of wood needed to build a campfire, but he thinks it must be much more than VRT is using. And the only time we see Marsh thinking about waste is when he's thinking about materiel, when he's thinking about the waste of his heavy ammunition and how using that blows an animal up to the point where you can't even get good meat out of them. And, and as we brought up, VRT weeps, at least concurrently with Marsh's explanation of why he's wasteful. And VRT seems to be a natural frontiersman in, in some regards. So, Glenn, what I want to ask you is, what do you think Wolf is setting up here in the contrast, or the, even in the way he's setting up the contrast? And do you think Wolf is doing an effective job of asking us to read Marsh's account as an ethical thing? Are we meant to look at it ethically uh, to determine whether anything he's doing is good or bad? We know Marsh ends up in prison, but is Marsh actually doing anything ethically wrong? By this point in our journey through Wolf's work, we know that he is a huge environmentalist. He loves writing about the wilderness. He has an aesthetic appreciation of nature, of the beauty of mountains and starry skies and forests and meadow mirrors and oceans. But Wolf also has a keen appreciation for Homo sapiens as a type of animal, a special type of animal, but an animal that is a part of a natural environment. Wolf has written a number of stories that we've already covered that show humans ruining that environment or manipulating that environment such that it's no longer recognizable and showing us different ways that removing ourselves from our natural environments does something damaging to us as as a people, but also as individual persons. And, and I think we can go as far to say that, that for Wolf, these actions do something damaging to our souls. Marsh here in VRT, and uh, especially in this expedition story, seems to be kind of an example of this, an example of someone who has grown up without any sense of a, a natural environment. He's so closed off that he's somehow, despite spending five, six, seven years of his life working on a PhD, 
not realized that the thing that has drawn his colleagues to anthropology is that they get to go live on islands in the Pacific Ocean for a whole year and not have to live in New York City and not have to live on a university campus, that they get to experience something of of nature and in, and more importantly, get to experience something of a human society that is closer to nature, that has a, a tighter relationship, that is more attuned with nature. Marsh has missed that. And I think Wolf is writing that explicitly, but then he is also showing us how such a person would behave the first time that he is actually confronted with the wilderness. And it is to need to be out there for almost a week before he can actually appreciate that there's anything truly beautiful about what's going on here. Uh, but also who thinks of animals as just his plaything, as something to kill for sport, uh, as trophies, and, and only marginally as food, who thinks it would be totally fine to to build massive fires because there's enough wood out here to do that without thinking through any kind of environmental stewardship that, uh, you know, someone whose hobby here in the United States of America in 2018 is mountaineering would, would understand. Marsh just has none of that. He's a person out of nature, and he seems kind of villainous to us as a result of that. And I think that's one of the main points that Wolf is making here. It's even more confounding as you think about an anthropologist who is studying an alien species who can shapeshift, at least in rumor, from person to creature, and the fact that he thinks nothing of listening to his guide who claims to at least be a part of this culture, uh, and who is telling him that he's seen evidence of the free people during their journey so far, and even the shadow children, and that Marsh himself says, just point them out to me. And meanwhile, he's just killing things willy nilly, even weeping water buffaloes. You know, he just doesn't, he's just refusing to engage in the trip seriously. He's just out there doing what he wants. Yeah, he doesn't even seem to want to actually learn anything about the native Annies, the free people, the abos. He doesn't really ask any questions about the nature of their shape-shifting. He doesn't seem to actually be interested in what their lives would be like, what this tree temple would have been for. He just wants to find them. All he is interested in is proving that they actually exist, because that's going to be the thing that will let him get a tenure-track job back on Earth. I, I'm intensely interested in this epiphany that he has while he's you know, standing on, on the rock on this, this place that is so important to VRT. I wonder if this is a true moment of change for him, this realization that the wilderness is actually an important part of what it means to be a person, uh, that it is an experience itself to be cherished, not uh, a tool to be used so that he can get a cushy job at uh, an Ivy League university or perhaps any university. I wonder how much we'll, we'll see that affecting him in the future, and if that epiphany will also translate into a genuine curiosity about who these people are rather than seeing them as an instrument for his own advancement. I, I suspect that the answer is no, because when we do meet him in the fifth head of Cerberus, he doesn't seem like a particularly nice person when he's enjoying the Maison du Chien, but also he is very callously there saying, well, I don't think I'm going to go back to earth because I won't be able to get a job because my education will be out of date. And anyway, I can get a great salary here. He doesn't seem to have really learned anything from this experience. He, he might genuinely be feeling it in the moment, but as soon as he's back in civilization, he's lost his soul again, maybe. I think his epiphany is even further undermined by the fact that he shoots two deer uh, just willy-nilly on the way back to the camp after he has it. He seems to be the type of person who has these uh, great uh, spiritual realizations and uses them to continue justifying his own actions that he was going to do anyway, maintain the status quo rather than actually change to suit his, to match his convictions. Furthermore, when we meet him on St. Croix in Port Mimizan, since you brought it up, he seems to be a person who has found no evidence of Abos 
And he seems to have come to Port Mimizan as a last resort, seeking any information from anybody who said anything about the Abos. And so we just see somebody who couldn't return to Earth because perhaps his academic career has brought him to ruin. He has found no evidence. And this chasing of rumors can't be turned in, turned into anything that could resemble a, a career. He He's not a particularly good person. But why do you think Wolf is putting him in contrast with VRT? And, and maybe to that end, why is the novel then car, called VRT and not Dr. Marsh's information he left behind after he was in prison? <laughs> well, for one, that's a terrible title. That's how I title my stories. <laughs> this is a great question. I, I think the most immediate contrast between their two characters or the, the characteristics that they possess is that Marsh is cynical and blind to genuine beauty. And VRT is simple, perhaps innocent, and highly attuned to genuine beauty and perhaps to and perhaps even just to, to the pleasures of being alive, to being a creature, to existing in the world. He gets so poetical when he's describing the way he sees the environment they've been walking through, that Tamarsh is just clinical and uninteresting. But VRT loves this landscape. He has seen many things that he regards as being people, animals and trees. Uh, we might question the literalness of some of the things that he's saying here, but regardless of that, it betrays a real love of this environment and the fact that he's in tune with it. To me, that's the most immediate contrast. There's almost something of the, the noble savage about VRT, which again is a theme that you rather brilliantly saw Wolf working with in Operation Ares as well. Right. I think we're getting something that is in keeping with the first novella, which is that we are getting the perspective of the villain and what's going on inside their own head. This is the second account in this trilogy of novellas of information that is supposed to be received as fact, as you are suspending disbelief to take what we're being told as the truth of the person telling the story. Whereas a story is explicitly mentioned to be a story which calls in all kinds of different sorts of questions. But this at least is some semi-factual account that we're supposed to be engaging with. And it would be thematically relevant for Wolf to also bring us into the mind of somebody who is uh, villainous rather than good, especially as it's taking place on Wolf's Inferno, San Croix. <laughs> and, and if the first novella was the story of a narrator's descent into villainy, or, or at least criminality, I think we have to see a parallel here and assume that because we know that he's in prison, that we're going to, this is the story of how Dr. Marsh also descends into criminality and might also descend into a real genuine villainy. We, at this point, still don't actually know what is the crime that he's been accused of. But having read this section of the journal, having read about how callously he treats the crying of other animals, but also other people, I would not be surprised to discover that he's done something genuinely heinous. Well, then I have to ask the question, how you connect somebody like that to what is essentially a kind of morality play or a fable, at least as it's presented to us in a story by John V. Marsh? How is the John V. Marsh we're meeting now and that we've met on San Croix capable of writing a, a, a sensitive, philosophically complex fable about the virtues of a, at least in part, of uh, an, an, a culture that existed before humans came. What do you make of the connections we're seeing so far, in other words, between these two stories? And John V. Marsh is he capable of having a transformation that celebrates the abos in any meaningful way? This is a great question because a story by John V. Marsh is clearly written by someone who has an intense appreciation for 
landscape, for environment, for the beauty of nature. It's also a beautiful wordsmith, but it's also written by someone who is keenly interested in imagining what the Abbas would actually be like, who they would be as people, what their culture would be like, what their biology is like. The author of that story fantasizes, dreams about what their religion would be like, what their understanding of the cosmos would be like, and how those things, how those perspectives, how those beliefs would shape their cultures. I don't see any of that happening in the Dr. Marsh that we've met on this expedition so far. And it might very well be that his journal, uh, which is meant to perhaps to be something of a professional text, uh, that the interviews that he's recording, where he is perhaps by training meant to distance himself from what it is that people are saying, it might be that we're not getting an accurate depiction of who he really is internally. It might also be that he does genuinely have this epiphany out here on the oasis. Uh, and we don't actually know when this story is written. It might be written perhaps three days from now while he's around another campfire and that it is while he is still in in, while he is still in the thrall of this epiphany and then something happens later to turn him back into this seemingly distant and 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 callous person that we encounter again at the maison de chien in the first novella yeah my hunch is that a story by john v marsh is written while he's in prison mainly due to the line from the shadow children in that story about how all great political movements start in prison. And we have this sense of his own self aggrandizement, uh, uh, that he believes that maybe he's trying to start some sort of revolution from prison. And this story is his uh, Lamour Tartar in some way, um, that he's writing about the current state of things. And also Dante's Inferno is another great example of this, story in exile about the current state of the world, but using heavy allegory or mythic figures to reveal the truth of the everyday world to readers who would be open to that reality. So I don't know. I think it's a very complicated question still, and maybe we'll get more as we go along in our coverage. Yeah, but that's a fascinating hypothesis. And I can't wait to see if that turns out to be true or not. And if it turns out that we still don't really get an answer, as I think we have to admit that with Wolf, we may not, I still think it would be interesting to carry that hypothesis through our reading of the of the rest of the story, no matter what, I think that will be great. Yeah, I have a list of questions I'm just following along with <laughs> as we as we cover this story. Uh, and they constantly pop up. W- one of them that I think we hit on pretty well in the recap, but I just want to talk about here is what's going on in the frame story. So in the first section, we have the intrusion of the cat into the officer's office. In this section, we have the intrusion of a bird. We talked about maybe a potential Poe connection there, especially as you as you reference the gold bug, which is you know the, like the first real mystery puzzle story ever written. Maybe not, but it's among the earliest. You know, what is going on with these transitions in the frame story? Is this just Wolf actually transitioning us from one form of information to another? Or are we supposed to make something of the cat and the bird in any meaningful sense? Is it just that in San Qua, you leave your window open, animals are going to jump in? Just to refresh, the connection that we made with Poe is that here in this section, it's a raven that has come into the office and is fluttering about. It doesn't ever actually say nevermore, but it might as well. It is It is borrowing the imagery of Edgar Allan Poe's famous poem, The Raven. And you pointed out that in the first section that we did, we have a similar intrusion, but it is by a black cat. There is, of course, the equally famous short story by Edgar Allan Poe, The Black Cat. So, I hadn't made that connection. I had only seen the Raven connections. I think this is brilliant. And I think we, again, are going to have to keep our eye on this are all of the little interludes that just get us to change the documents. Uh, Wolf's riffs on Edgar Allan Poe stories. I mean, it's a great drinking game, right? (laughs) At the very least, that's what we'll be doing as, as we uncover Wolf's homage to Poe in VRT. But to get to the real heart of your, your question here of, 
Is there something substantive going on, or are these interludes just to explain why we are moving from one text to another, why we're moving from Marsha's journal to his prison scribblings? Right now, I don't know that I've got a definitive answer, or really what I should say is I don't think that I have a hypothesis about what is the substantive thing that Wolf is doing, but I suspect he's doing something because Wolf always is, right? But at this moment, it just seems like they're funny interludes. I'm with you on that. Though the cat to me seems particularly important as, uh, you know, it is the main illusion in Carol Tropic's epigram as it is the thing that is following the expeditioners on their journey. And, you know, I just have to wonder what's going on. I think the cat is definitely important. And as it jumps into the officer's window or tries to get in and is terrified of the hand on the gun, not even the gunshot, just the fact that the hand moves to a gun. The cat has learned something about guns that it doesn't like. Do you think it's the same cat that followed them on the campsite? And that is, now on the officer's desk, it would be insane because it's an interplanetary journey for a cat. But I'm not asking you if Jesus is in the story, so I think you can forgive me. <laughs> yes, this is a much more rational question than anything I've ever posed to you, for sure. And frankly, I've watched enough Star Trek to know that sometimes cats travel through space. Uh, right now, I, I don't think that it is the same cat, but I also would not be surprised if it doesn't turn out that it is the same cat and that somehow the cat is extremely important as is, is a kind of character, actually, in this story. I'm looking forward to seeing if that turns out to be the case. Well, it's another one of the questions I'm kind of going to be looking at as I continue to read this text. Again, this is my first time through this, and we're performing, and I say performing, but that's really the word for it, a close reading. We're just looking at the details and seeing what they bring up for us as readers and what we think they, it might mean as we learn more information about the story. The final thing we have to do tonight is walk through what I'm calling the Marsh defense. You brought this up in the recap episode, but I just want to ask again if you have any thoughts about Marsh's confusion of time, where he says, I have asked him, that is, I will ask him, in reference to his attorney calling an earth, earth attorney in to help him do work, or at least to get a better attorney. There's some sort of public defender system going on on San Croix. Yeah, I think there's two things to unpack there. One is, it's, it's not really even clear to me if it is an earth attorney. The university that we've seen him mention here in VRT is Columbia, but as far as we can tell, there is no way to violate physics and communicate with Earth in such a way that they would receive his message, you know, in, in some kind of instantaneous way. And we know it would take 60 years of his time here in the prison for such a person to show up. So he must be referring to some other university. And I think with that information, we have to be wondering when the prison stuff is happening in relation to the novella, The Fifth Head of Cerberus, when he is considering taking a job with the university on San Croix. And I think that this is a very sly, subtle way of pointing out that this is taking place after the events of The Fifth Head of Cerberus, when he has, in fact, taken such a position at a university on San Croix. And that's the university that is going to hire a, a private attorney for him. But maybe it's not. We don't have enough information to know for sure. But that's what I think is happening there. But as for what's going on with with time, with with memory, with, with reality, I don't have a, a real answer or a clear picture of what is it that's happening. Because this literally is uh, two sentences in this section that then goes on to be about something completely different. But his mental state does not seem good right now. And it seems very much, in fact, this section is entirely him having a sort of conversation in his head. And it seems that he's also having other types of conversations in his head, right? Where he has thought about what he will say to an attorney when he gets to actually speak with one. And he's had it so many times. And he's perhaps in complete isolation, in the dark, he's sleeping on a floor, he's licking himself to keep clean. 
that he's lost his grip on reality and these conversations that he's having in his head, these imaginary conversations have become real to him uh, in some way. And it, or at least he has to fight that. He has to fight to know that they're not real. I think that's a brilliant explanation uh, of what's going on here. And, and, and it hadn't occurred to me. And I think it's important to note that isolation is, is the worst punishment that human beings have devised to enact upon one another. Um, and, and that to put somebody in isolation is to essentially tell them that they should go crazy. And I think looking at what Wolf is doing here with time is, again, referencing the nature of trauma, which he's done in past stories as well as it relates to time. I think particularly in the Blue Mouse is probably the best example of this. Uh, but we've brought it up in multiple episodes where trauma distorts time. This is something that happens in Fifth Head in particular, where due to the drug treatment that number five receives, he loses time, and that's his biggest fear. And when we see number five in prison, we see time being really wholly subjective once again, where somebody gets a fever and they think it's been 10 years, but it's been 10 days. And and I think that's a brilliant explanation and a, and a way that Wolf is really tying these two books together that simply hadn't occurred to me. I was thinking of the fact that this odd time screw up in combination with the stream called the end of days and the river called the tempest and all of these things that wolf is alerting us to time and judgment in a very particular way that I still haven't worked out entirely. And we get clear explanations about the difference between Newtonian and relative time when we're, when, when we're getting explanations about how space travel works in this civilization. We also get a relative use of time when Marsh makes it clear that the dates that he's using in his journal entry are the dates on the planet, not the dates on the interstellar calendar that they, that they all use. Time is a subjective or at least a, a relative phenomenon here. But when, when you were just talking about the other times that Wolf has played with these ideas and other stories that we've read together, that got me thinking about another thing that we see Wolf doing all the time, which is looking at the relationship not just between time and trauma, but the relationship between literature and trauma or fantasy and trauma. And I'm thinking very specifically of The Island of Dr. Death and other stories, but we've seen this in other stories, I guess, by Wolf, where he looks to the way that stories are something that we can use to cope with our own trauma. And that really might lend itself to your hypothesis that a story by John V. Marsh is written here in the prison. And it might also explain why that person, the person who wrote that story, seems so different from the person who has written these journal entries because he's having this profound experience here in isolation in the prison that he is he is fantasizing about a world that has smells and sights that is something more than a dungeon cell that he can't even see well because it's dark. Fantasizing about a world in which he gets to know, intimately know, the personalities of other people and to know about their families and their relationships with one another, to know what they are thinking about the universe, know what they're thinking about God, know what they're thinking about time. This might very well be the escape that he is seeking in prison, that he's writing this to flee his own trauma. It's certainly something to keep an eye on. And again, it's another one of these moral lessons that Wolf is teaching us, if it's true. And, and, and as I said, this is a hypothesis that we will continue to look at and be proven wrong, as I think we were with elements of a story as we were reading it. But it's a lesson that Mark Aramini brought up uh, that really struck me during our conversation with him about operationaries, where I was kind of dismissive of the fact that the pro tem president Boyd would still be in office. And Mark's response was basically that, well, Wolf thinks redemption is for everybody. <laughs> and that's that's something that really struck me as something to look out for in Wolf. It's not just for uh, the the people who deserve it, but if it's 
true, if this kind of Catholic story of redemption is true, it's even for the people who are oppressors or villains as well. And just to be clear, although I don't think either of us particularly likes the Dr. Marsh that we're getting to know in this story, we don't maybe really want to hang out with him. He's not done anything particularly awful other than display a kind of insensitivity and a, a lack of empathy. There are a lot of people walking around who, who behave this way. He's not, he's not being some terrible type of villain. So I think redemption is clearly in his, in his reach. Right. Well, as I said, we'll be keeping an eye on that. But we have to get to Marsh's defense, which takes up a, a, a fair portion of this section that we covered today. So what we're going to do is just walk through Marsh's argument and basically check it for validity. It is, I think, logically sound. It's a logically sound argument, so I'm not going to look for uh, inaccuracies in the premises or propositions or conclusions. We're going to validate the argument, which is to see, does it match up to anything in the real world (laughs) at all? Um, So the first thing Marsh does is reject the initial premise of justice, which is the concept of guilt. And it's not just the concept of guilt, it's that the concept of guilt is broadly valid. So as we get to the next proposition, I just want to ask you first, Glenn, without going further in the argument, what does Marsh hope to gain by rejecting the premise? The first thing that I want to note about this legal argument that he makes is that he is wasting no time professing his actual innocence of the crime. And I think that's very important. He is immediately going to a defense that says that he shouldn't be punished for having committed the crime. We still don't know what the crime is at this point. Uh, I, I expect that we will find out soon. And then that will be interesting to sew that up together to recognize that he's already and he's already implicitly admitted the veracity of the the charges on on some level, and that his defense, the way that he's going to not get punished for having done whatever it is, is to demonstrate that he shouldn't be punished for it. And I have to say, I don't think that's going to work out very well for him. (laughs) I don't think it works out well for anybody. The legal system is designed to ignore these types of arguments. (laughs) Yes, exactly. And I think to say... And I just can't imagine any judge really being willing to tolerate uh, an amateur, someone who is not a lawyer, challenging some of the fundamental principles upon which the justice system, the legal system of any society is constructed. But I do have to say that it is actually interesting that he does make this argument that we have already all decided that there are some people who can't be punished for crimes. They have that someone who has murdered another person, for example, can't be punished for that because they were incapable of understanding that what they were doing was a crime. I mean, in some sense, this is the exact plot of To Kill a Mockingbird, right? And although I myself don't have any particular legal training, any legal training at all, that seems right to me. We do have a different set of standards for juveniles. We do understand that people have to be ruled to be mentally competent in order to stand trial for a crime. And so none of that is the absurd thing that Marsh is doing. The absurd thing that Marsh is doing is arguing that a 30-year-old man is a child because the definition of child shouldn't be based on age, which it is. <laughs> right. Well, we'll get to that in just a moment, uh, because that's a major, major premise. That's a major proposition in his continuing argument. I do want to say that part of the reason why the legal system has different classifications of uh, capability of being punished under the legal system is that you have to assent, it has to be recognized by people in your community that you are capable of assenting to a rational system in some way. You know, we don't think children are particularly capable of rationally assenting to a a continued agreement to live in society with the rest of us. The same thing with, um, you know, people who are mentally incapable of making decisions or acting on their own will. 
in the same reason we wouldn't really be able to prosecute a hurricane for destroying a, a stretch of land. There's no way to get recompense for that in any way. You can't prosecute people who are incapable of assenting to the system that you're punishing them with to punish them. It's it's an actually brilliant insight into the way our legal system works is that there are things beyond the system that can't be encompassed in it that we have to take into account. Um, and so we have to find other means of treating with these types of people. But Marsh goes beyond the typical definitions of these classes of not guilty verdict, just the natural classes of those people. He hits some of them. He hits children, weak of intellect, and disturbed of mind. This is something we all agree to in our society. But then he also nails the things that we don't want to talk about that are the practical application of our legal system in many cases, which is the very rich, the near relations of persons in high positions, and the persons in high positions themselves. The fact that a president can pardon anybody who he wants, governors can do the same thing. This is all designed as a final measure to protect Uh, people who may not be deserving of the death penalty or corporal punishment from getting it that that's the way it's portrayed in tv at least but there's some legal protections in having authority and authority stop judgment to stay judgment by the fact that we believe certain things about authority in our world but what marsh is bringing up here in his first real propositional uh, statement is that the people who we view as authorities are actually not subject to our judgment as society. What do you make of this list as a whole? But also, do you think it's valid? And do you think Wolf, through the voice of Marsh, is just giving us an objective look at the practical impacts of our justice system? We do have to remember that we are in a speculative fiction story here, and it's not entirely clear what legal system or which legal system Marsh is really referring to, there absolutely have been legal systems in human societies that have exempted from trial or from legal punishment people who are rich and people who are in power. They tend to really be the same class of person in most societies, but there have been law codes that have exempted those people from punishment. It's entirely possible that is the legal system here on San Qua. We have no other evidence about the legal system other than that we might point to the fact that we know that number five, the narrator of the fifth head of Cerberus, is punished for the murder of his father despite being rich. Though being a brothel owner might be seedy. It might not actually get you into that category of being uh, someone in a position of power uh, or adjacent to a position of power or, uh, or actually qualify as a rich person. He might so because of the dark nature of running a brothel, be not eligible for that category. But it is possible that this is, in fact, the accepted legal system here on San Qua. Well, that's really an argument for the validity of Dr. Marsh's argument so far, is what you're saying is we should take this at face value, that his argument so far at least is valid. And that would really go with why he wants to get the private attorney hired by the university. One might think that there is something there that he's trying to manipulate, uh, an elevation of status to get himself into this class of being socially important or politically connected somehow. You know, one assumes that the president or chancellor of the university is going to hit that class of someone who is uh, powerful and therefore exempt from these types of punishments. But I do also think that Wolf is critiquing, he is criticizing the justice system as it existed in the United States of America circa 1970 and very much as it exists today. I mean, I think all of us know that rich people don't get punished for crimes. We all know that a poor kid who gets uh, caught with some marijuana is going to go to jail and the rich kid is not. And I think we even all internally know that something is not right with that, though we don't tend to particularly do anything about it. But I do think that Wolf 
is wanting to raise that issue here in, in, a, in a subtle way. I agree. And he's using the classic form of literature of satire to bring it to our attention and to get us to think about it. But let's return to the argument in Marsh's defense. The next move he makes is to designate himself as a member of at least two of these classes of people who are exempt from justice. And as I said in the recap episode, he says he's should be viewed as a member of all five of these classes. And one I didn't mention two minutes ago was animals. But Marsh argues that he is both a child and an animal. First, he takes up the argument of the reasoning why he is a child. He says that he's a child because the way that we legally designate people as children is essentially patently absurd. He's arguing that we set a new legal precedent for the definition of children. He claims that the category of children ought to be based on the way society treats an individual in that society rather than their age. And he makes a kind of Zeno's paradox argument here. He says, if somebody's essentially 17 on Tuesday and 18 the next day, how is there, how do we draw that line, right? That the legal line being drawn here is absurd in its nature. The Zeno's paradox I'm referring to is, how does one piece of straw, at what point when you're adding one piece of straw at a time to it, how does it become a pile? At what, wh- where do we make that designation? It's, it's, the, it's a semantic problem and an epistemological problem. We all know what a pile looks like, and we all know what a few straws of hay looks like. How do we draw these lines? And it's uh, worth thinking about these types of things if you ever just sit down in a dark room <laughs> by yourself and wonder how the world even works. Yeah, or you're in prison. <laughs> right, for instance. And your bed is a pile of hay, and you're wondering about these things anyway. Yeah, that's exactly when you should be thinking, is this a pile, or is it just a few pieces of straw? <laughs> right. <laughs> well, as I said, March is arguing for a new legal precedent. Society treats him as a child for the following reasons. He owns no property, and he never has owned property. He has never taken part in or even witnessed a legally binding contract, and he has never been called upon to give evidence in a court of law. So what do you make of this propositional statement? And is this actually a valid definition of what a child is in our society? Are we really just subjectively engaging with this definition of child, or are there objective things in our culture that we treat as children. To start, I quibble even with the factualness of these claims he's making about not having entered into a contract and not having been called upon to give legal testimony. He's literally giving legal testimony right now. He has been called upon to do it by virtue of having been charged with this crime. The guy's also an adult who has had to rent an apartment. He, Even if he is living in Columbia-subsidized housing, he is still signing a contract to pay rent out of his stipend back to the university. At least that's the way the system in America works today. That is a legally binding contract. So, in fact, he has. But to get to the real spirit of the question of whether or not doing those things or not doing those things is the real marker of whether a person is a child or an adult is totally bogus. Whether a person is a child or is an adult is about their biological development. And in, and specifically, it's about the development of their brain and therefore their cognitive abilities. Are they capable of understanding that an action they could take is illegal? If they are capable of understanding that, then that person is an adult. If they are not, then that person is a child. By Marsh's definition, someone who is growing up in a wealthy family could make it to be 45 years old and never do any of these things because this person is perhaps living in property that is owned by the family, not owned by him or her, driving cars that are owned by someone other than him or her. Not having not having gotten married and, and had a child. We are both bald, middle-aged guys who don't have kids, but I'm, pretty, but I'm pretty clear on the fact that neither of us are children, for example, right? So these are just clearly kind of absurd things that someone who is clearly an adult could 
fit all of these criteria that he's describing, but yet also have an extraordinary cognitive ability and certainly the very basic ability to know what is legally permissible and what is not, and also to know what is morally right and what is morally wrong. So this is a ridiculous claim just on the face of it. Again, since I think Wolf is doing some a bit of satire here, he's I think this whole argument is another fantasy of Marsh's, as I'm going to really nail, as I'm really going to try to bring home with the next bit of the argument that kind of brings this whole section to a close. I think it's meant as a provocation. If the rich and powerful who may, as you say, never actually own property, may work on a system of favors, may operate under these conditions in some way through handshake deals like we see Marsh take with Trenchard, the the beggar whose son, VRT, he takes with him on the expedition, that he's saying this whole world is run by children in some way. This generational wealth, you know, where where people aren't doing anything. He's making a case that these these people caught up in a case of arrested development can't rule and shouldn't rule. And maybe on some level, this is his revolutionary statement on why the legal system in its whole is bogus. But this argument is certainly not valid in any way we would say. We we know that courts move the age of children around. They investigate whether a child is aware of the consequences of their action and whether they meant to do something to try them as an adult. And I think the age range on that is very great before adulthood. And I think that that's clear even here on San Croix in the world of the fifth head of Cerberus, because we know that the narrator, number five, is convicted of murdering his father. But I don't believe that he's 18. He has not reached what is in the United States our definition of a legal adult yet. And we also know that the court took very seriously, or the legal system took very seriously, the question of who inherits the Maison du Chien and could not find any evidence that supported the claim that David should be the inheritor of the estate. These are things that this society is clearly concerned about. Dr. Marsh is not going to win this argument. No, I think he's just alone and thinking to himself. Let's move to the last bit of the argument, which is where the prisoner, Marsh, argues that he is an animal because of the way he is being treated in prison, that his exposure to this system of justice has turned him from a human being into an animal. Now, this is the whole story of the abos as well this type of transformation at least in intellectual thought in terms of approach of the question of abos that turns them from human to animal and back again but in this story uh, marsh is provoking the judge by saying that you in fact have turned me into an animal by treating me this way in prison there's no evidence that this system of justice wants to try people at all. They just want to try animals. They've already assumed guilt, in other words. So, I don't know. How do you respond to this final bit of the prisoner's argument? To me, this seems more valid than being tried as a child one, but it's certainly a provocation. And it is, as you point out, a a provocation that rings true with the fundamental, the central themes of this book, this question of what it means to be a person to begin with. And there is absolutely something disgusting about this description of the way that he is being treated in this prison at all, but especially before he's even convicted of a crime. This is someone who's just being held, and presumably because the allegation is that he's committed a violent crime and they want to make sure that he can't do that sort of violence to some other person. Nonetheless, this person has not been proven guilty yet and is already being punished by not having access to a decent living environment, by by having access to even a hygienic living environment. He's unable to clean himself, has to resort to licking himself, is sleeping on straw on a cold floor. I'm not sure that a society that treats suspected criminals that way is going to really hear this argument. So again, this argument is not really about whether or not it's going to get him 
out of being punished for this alleged crime. And it has to be about the themes that Wolf is exploring. He is asking us to think, what is the line between human and animal? And are we in charge of whether or not we are humans or animals? Or is this something that is determined by the way that other people treat us? And here, Wolf is having this character make an argument that it is about the way that others treat us. That if others treat us as subhuman, then we become subhuman, that we become animals. I think you're absolutely right. And I think that this is really kind of a great bit of biting and cynical criticism of how Wolf is looking at our legal system in the U.S. today, but also marrying it to the question of how we live in response to things like the golden rule, which is do unto others as you would have them do unto you, or the uh, categorical imperative from Kant, which is like, don't treat people as a means to an end, rather treat them as an end to themselves. And that the whole system of our government and laws is, is built around the fact that people are entirely incapable of acting this way. And that the more power people get as a result of trying to correct the fact that people can't act this way, the more corrupt the system becomes. And it's just a a very cynical view in Wolf's mind uh, that sometimes on my darker days I share. Well, we have to keep in mind that this is Wolf's hell. This is the, we are back in the inferno part of Dante's divine comedy here. And that we're seeing a justice system here that at its basic level treats people as not human, that makes people prove that they should be treated as if they are actual people and not as if they are animals that you're you're starting below neutral you're starting below zero and have to work your way even just to that let alone work your way to some a positive part of the ledger here it is stacked against you from the start that you are always going to start from the default position of being subhuman here in hell Well, I can't think of a better place to wrap up this discussion than with that wonderful note of hope you've closed us with, Glenn. (laughs) (laughs) So that's going to do it for this episode. Once again, I'm Brandon Buddha. And I'm Glenn McDorman. We'd love it if you'd consider helping us reach our next Patreon goal of hosting an online hangout to talk about this book when we're all done uh, by becoming a supporter there. We'd love your support. And... We're just grateful for everybody who listens to us and for people who are able to spare a little extra to help us keep this project running. Head on over to the Clay Temple forums and let us know what you thought of this section. There uh, was a lot of things we discussed, new imagery popping up of the animals in the interludes, uh, pose, inclusion by Wolf in this story, and the satire that Wolf does at the very end of this of our justice system. Let us know your thoughts. We'd love to engage with you about what's going on in VRT up to this point. Next time, we're going to cover pages 174 through 192 of the the 1994 Orb Edition. This is going to be our longest chunk of the book yet. And until then, we greet you and say farewell. Farewell.